Okay, this one's an absolute beauty. We got NHL tough guy, George LaRock. If you like what I'm doing, you hit the subscribe button. And if you need a place to go for good food, good drinks, and great staff, head on over to the John B. Pub. Hi everyone, I'm George LaRock, and I'm happy to be on my Only Touch Greatness podcast. Hope you'll have lots of fun. <laughs> Ryan Hayes. I only touch greatness podcast. fan i see oh yeah season ticket holder nice nice yeah thanks for taking the time to come on and do this with me i uh oh you're welcome brother you're welcome appreciate that how's the weather back east it's not bad you guys got snow yet no not yet not yet (laughs) but at least at, at least we don't need an umbrella like you every day oh i know that's for sure it was raining this morning like pouring and now it's sunny yeah. So, okay, I'm Ryan, by the way. So it's nice to meet you. And uh, oh, you're a Seahawks fan. Oh yeah, I saw your tweets. Yeah. I saw your tweets. Yeah. Hey, how funny was it? The tweet uh, just before, as soon as we blocked them four and one, I yeah. say, "Watch Wilson go go to work," and we won it. It was a miracle, man. Oh yeah, and, and Metcalf is awesome. Do you play fantasy sports? Yeah. No. No, I don't. Oh. I don't. Okay. Um, so you're obviously a Seahawks fan. Yeah, big time, big time. I've been there and uh, oh, you ride beside. So yeah. you, how long? It's uh, do you hours. drive there or you fly? We usually drive there. It's a two hour drive. Oh, wow. Yeah. How many games have you been to? Um, my, uh, there's like three of us that kind of split two tickets every year. So we, oh, I, go wow. to, I, go, I go to a couple every year. That's awesome. So, yeah, big fan of the Seahawks and, of course, Russell yeah. Wilson. And then Metcalf's my favorite. Yeah. But, yeah, I know. What, what a steal he was in the draft, huh? Oh, for sure. And I'm during the draft, I was watching it live here, and I was screaming at my TV, like, pick Metcalf. And it kept moving down. Oh, really? kept moving down, and I wanted Metcalf so bad. And then, uh, yeah. sure, enough, sure enough, they grabbed him, and it was awesome. Yeah, good. Kind of like 
Chase Claypool did the other day too. He had a hell of a game. Yeah, that too. That's incredible too. What he's doing. Yeah. Good. Good, good for Canadian sports. Good. That's good Canadian kid there, and he lives a couple. Yeah. He lives about half hour away from here, so that's good. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um. Okay. So you're born in Montreal. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Uh, what challenges did you come across to get into where you are, or how did you come across to, as you got to the NHL? Uh, racism, you know, as a kid, um, you know, when you when your parents are born in Haiti and then they move to Montreal and they don't know anything about winter, first of all, <laughs> and they don't know anything about the sport, they never they don't know what hockey is, NHL is, but because I was born in Montreal, every kid. The first thing you have to do when you're born in Montreal, you have to learn how to skate. Because uh, if you don't, then you're, you're considered weird, right? Yeah. And, uh, and we all want to play in the NHL. So I wanted to play hockey. But the thing is, is that at that time, we're talking about, I'm, I'm 43 now, so many years ago, there was no colored guy that played hockey. So when I said that as a kid I was going to play in the NHL, I could just imagine all the racial slur I had to endure to, to make it there. And the thing is, my parents didn't like winter. They didn't know anything about hockey. And when they saw that, they saw the racing I was going through, they were like, um, you know what? We don't want you to play hockey. What is this? They were like, you know, for a kid, it's not a good environment to be on. So they, uh, they didn't want me to play. But I told them, I said, no, I'm going to make it to the NHL despite all the racism that I have to endure. I don't care. And they watched me. Like I was, I was saying that to my parents. I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. My entire youth, uh, when I played, that's what I was saying. And, you know, when I made it, my dad said it, you know, our, our, our son taught us a lesson because uh, lessons of resiliency because he did it alone. Because I, I, was, I was living this alone and uh, lots of obstacles that kids should never have to go through. And despite, and that's already a huge obstacle to try to make it to the NHL, but with all the obstacles that I've been through it, it's a testament and a proof that anytime you have a goal in life, nothing is impossible if you believe in yourself and you do all the sacrifice to attain to uh, to achieve it. That's exactly true. You put all and you you put in that hard work and no one don't let anyone tell you no. Then you keep moving and moving and moving and getting it done. Yeah. So thirty first overall pick in the ninety five draft, uh, obviously by the Oilers. Um, what were your feelings that day? Well, you know, it, it's crazy because, uh, you know, at the draft, I remember uh, when I was there and, and I knew I was going to get drafted. Um, it's just that, you know, all those years of uh, all the sacrifice that I've made, all the racial stir that, that, that I endured when I was a kid, it was like payoff time. I was going to find out what team I was going to have a career with. And I know being drafted in a way is easy. Making the team is much harder. But to me, it was part of the stepping stone I knew I was like I was gonna have a career so once I get drafted by that team I would know um who I would go to and and what was awesome is that that, that draft was in Edmonton and every pick that got picked by Edmonton the crowd was getting a standing ovation right so and and, and they were looking for toughness so when they draft me it, it, it was awesome because just a couple seconds before the scout kind of looked at my agent direction and he winked at him saying that uh, I was going to be next. And uh, yeah, uh, to go to Edmonton, it was awesome. Uh, the, the, where the draft was, the Canadian team, uh, couldn't have asked for a better team to start my career with. 
and uh, it, it was it was awesome. It, it was it, it was it was the start of something uh, that was going to be an unbelievable career, an unbelievable start. And my best memories, obviously, in the NHL were in Edmonton. Okay, you you were drafted though as a power forward, right? You, they wanted you to be a power forward at first, or did, was it always going to be an enforcer? No, well, the thing is, is that there's two different type of enforcer, right? Uh, there's the enforcer that only plays a couple of shifts a game, and all he does is fight. As the, and there's also the enforcer that plays a regular shift and fights also. That's what I did. Edmonton, uh, we were always playing a fourth-line team. Uh, everybody was playing, contributing. So I was playing nine to ten minutes a night. And that was awesome because, you know, you feel more into the game and, and contributing, you know scoring goals, making plays. Uh, that was awesome. Uh, and, and Edmonton made me work really hard so I wasn't just a one-dimensional player because a lot of tough guys that were uh, one-dimensional player, they didn't play uh, after Christmas or come playoff times because we knew after Christmas and playoff time there was no fighting, so they, there was no role for them. But because I've always worked so hard to be more, more than one-dimensional player, oh. in the playoff time, it, the physical part was the most important. And because I worked so hard to be a, a physical force that I got to play every team that I play in the playoff with, I got to play in a playoff because I, I showed the team that I could be a, a force even when there was no fighting. And to me, uh, that was a big accomplishment because I know a lot of my brothers that did the job uh, never got to taste playoff hockey because of no fighting or because they weren't like fast enough to be physical to, to to be a factor in games and the fact that i scored in playoff and i made it twice the Stanley Cup final and got to taste it without winning it um it, it was awesome you know because you know fighting is such a tough part it's the toughest job in professional sport but the fact that you get to play and score goals and important goals winning goals sometimes and i got the hat trick stuff like this um Mostly the stuff that I remember that I love the most than, than thinking about the fights and everything. Because, you know, when you play as a kid, you don't think about the fighting. When you're a pro and you get bigger, you know you got to have this to your game to be in the NHL. But I have to admit that I enjoyed way more when I played the game and enjoyed scoring than talking about enjoying fighting, right? Because it's two things that are completely separate. So you weren't one that enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, people that know me, they know that it was never a part of me. It was never me. I, I hated it. I did it because that's what I had to do to make it to the NHL and to stay there, but it was never in me. And it's a good thing that was not in me because if I was um, a violent person, if I liked it, I could have killed somebody uh, doing it because I never fought mad. You know, I was never mad. I was never angry. I was just just because it was the job and that's it. I've always talked to the guy after, it's a good luck. Talk, talk you want to? Yeah, okay. Square up. You know, good luck. Like that, but I did, and people got used to it. If you ask any referees in the NHL, who's the easiest guy to break up in a fight, they'll say me. Because I would stop it before the, the referee even came in. Because it was just like the way that I was. You know, I, I was able to separate the fact that, you know, it was a job. But why be mad at someone? He didn't do anything, right? So it's just that it wasn't part of me, but I figured if I don't like something like this, if I become the best at it, then I don't have to do it as much because people are going to respect me more. They're going to respect my team. 
so I don't don't have to go out there policing because people will be like, you know what? At that time, there were 30 teams in the NHL. I'll run around against all the other team Larac is not in, but I'll leave his team alone so I don't have to answer to him. <laughs> so I figure that the better you are, the less you have to do it. But if you have a tough guy that fights, and at back in the days, there's some guys that fight 30, 40 times a year. Well, there's a problem. If you fight 40 times a year, that means you're not scaring anyone. So people are not afraid to taking liberty on your team. So I know there's some fans that say, oh, our fighter fights so much. Uh, that's because nobody's afraid of him. So that's not good. You know, so that's why I, I try to be the best at it. So I didn't have to do it as much. Uh, you won an award by the Hockey News 2003 for best fighter. And then also 2008, the number one fighter by Sports Illustrated. Do you, do you remember these kind of things? Uh, well, yeah. But the thing is, in hockey, it's not like in boxing or, or, or wrestling where they give you a belt, right? Uh, people like whether they said I was or to me, I, to be honest with you, I never cared about that. I never talked about it. You know, it was part of my, because I didn't like it. I never took pride of it. I never ever talked to people and I said, oh, I was known as the toughest guy in the league because what does that do? It doesn't do anything. There's no belt. You don't get more money for it. It doesn't. The only thing that I could took pride on though is that if you look at everybody that did the job, what I would do is I would look at the stats. I've always wanted to be the guy that had the most goals, the guy that had the most points. And I did. If you look at the heavyweights every year that I played on, statistics-wise, I was the best. And to me, that was the most important to show that you're more than one-dimensional player. Those are the stats I was looking at, the plus, minus, the assist, the goals, stuff like this. Because then I would show that I was reliable on the ice even if I wasn't fighting. And to me, that was the most important thing. When in terms of, of being the toughest of all, you know, that was for people that, were, that loved fighting. But to me, uh, I never took pride of it because, you know, I know it was part of the game, an important part of it. But whether you were known as toughest or not, it didn't matter the fact that you still had to do it and uh, nobody gave you a belt for it. Do you have a favorite sports movie? 42. 42 by far. Uh, the Jack, Jack Robinson Bob. movie. Yeah, because... When I was a kid and, and I was enjoying all the racism and my parents weren't supporting me because they didn't want me to play, uh, it was hard because, you know, it was when you're a kid and people are throwing racial slur at you and you have to endure that and you're alone, it's tough, especially when your parents are not supporting. So what happened is when I was a kid, my sister had a collection of books of uh, people that have un accomplished amazing things in the society. And there was Joanne Arc, Benjamin Franklin, Rocket Richard. And there was one of Jack Robinson, an, an example of courage. The title was it. It was a kid's autobiography of him with pictures on it. And when I read it, even though it wasn't baseball, he became my role model. Because when I read his story, uh, I read how he used the racial slur as a motivation to, to make it to Major League Baseball. Other than getting mad, he used this field into a sport to try it even harder to prove people wrong. So when I read his book, it changed my life because when people, by that time, and I was 10 years old when I read it, when I read it, now every time I got called a racial slur, I was like, okay, I got to do like Jackie. I used it as a motivation to work harder in my sport to prove people wrong. That was the best way to fight back. So Jackie, Jackie's, and, and you know, when sometimes you, you, people talk about reading, 
a kid's book has no meaning. For me, it changed my life. It's one of the reasons I made it to the NHL. So, of course, just like Jackie, I wanted to write my own autobiography, uh, uh, the story of the unlikely stuff guy, to inspire other minorities that want to achieve their dream. But, you know, when the movie 42 came out, I had to go see it because as a kid, that book changed my life. And, you know, that, that, that movie to me brings so much emotion because everything that I've lived through, uh, you know, everything that you see that Jackie lived through, I, I went through it as a hockey player. Not as bad as getting death threat like he was because he was in a time where things was even crazier when you were separating white and black. Yeah. But still, uh, I got called the N-word so much when I was a kid that if you watch me play in the rink, you think it was my name. How this is how bad that it was. So that's why, like, for me, that movie, because it means so, and there's tons, of, I'm a huge movie buff and I love all the true movie autobiography out there. But the 42 one, because of my story and everything that I've been through, is the one to me that speaks the most. So would you say he's you're also your favorite athlete? Because I got that question coming up. Well, uh, my favorite, well, again, he's, he's, he's not my favorite athlete because it's in baseball. Yeah. And, and I, have, I don't mean any disrespect to baseball people, but I don't think that people that play baseball are the best athletes. Because yeah. for a long time, I never considered baseball a sport <laughs> yeah. because I didn't think that it was. Now guys are more in shape, but back then when we watched baseball, you look at all those overweight guys that Babe were Ruth. batting. Yeah, Babe Ruth, like, like, you know, he was so out of shape. And, you know, guys were getting runners to run for them because they, yeah. they couldn't even run the base when they were doing a home run, right? Yeah. Like, what kind of sport is that? You know, so... Vernon Wells, when he did his perfect game, he wrote a book and he said he was drunk when he, when he did it. And I know pitching is, is an art and, and it's so not so many people could do it. And hitting a fastball is one of the hardest things to do, uh, you know, in, in the world. But anyway, so Jack Robertson was my, was my idol, but my, my favorite athlete was probably Michael Jordan, you know, uh, who didn't grow up watching MJ when they were kids. And, and what MJ has done, you know, six, six MVP, six championship, uh, is the bar, you know, of all the sport, you know, the, the bar that everybody wants to be, and, and you couldn't be like him. So, uh, yeah, uh, just the way that he was, and and I don't know if you watched uh, the Last Dance, yeah, um, uh, you know, that was unbelievable, yeah, uh, you know, to, to see a star and how intense that he was, you know, and and just that, uh, you know, if you want to be a professional athlete, I know he was really over the top but you we all have to have a bit of mg uh, mj in us to make it professionally and that's what separates us from the people that makes and the people that don't often people say we're too intense but that's why we made it that's what separates us from the best and you need that edge and you know i thought i had an edge to make it to the nhl and after i saw the last dance i was like man that's nothing compared to him no surprise seeing the way that he was that that he's the best ever to to ever uh, ever play uh, basketball and and one of the best sporting icon to ever live. Oh yeah, definitely up there with Gretzky. Yeah. Um, you scored a hat trick versus LA. How many hat tricks did you have? Uh, I had one in junior hockey, okay. but you know, in the NHL, uh, you know, when I started playing the NHL, um, the only time that I would score a hat trick is with uh, when I play PlayStation. And I used George LaRock, George yeah. LaRock in a PlayStation. 
And that was the only time, but I never thought I was going to hat trick in the NHL. So I'll never forget February 21st, 2000. Uh, we're in Edmonton. Uh, we're playing LA. Uh, I got into a fight that game. I got two goals. There's a minute left. And uh, the, the, the crowd started chanting my name to go out there. Uh, so I could get the hat trick because they pulled Stefan Fizet, they pulled the goalie out. It's four three for us, and I'm like, yes, come on, coach. And I'm like, I'm looking at the coach. Hopes he puts me on the bench. And Kevin Ogosi is like, oh, George, it was to be first in the division. That game was important. He's like, we're gonna put the defensive defensive unit out there. And I was like, oh, damn. So we put the defensive unit out there. Uh, Yanni Nima scored an empty netter. It's five three. There's thirty seconds left in the game. And then the coach put us lying back out, out there and have two goals. Game is pretty much done. 30 seconds left. I'm like, well, it's a good game. I got two goals in a fight, right? And I scored. With 30 seconds left, the parking of Fessel zone, I get a pass. And I don't know why. I do a Denis Savard spinorama in front of Aki Bird. I'm in front of Fizan back in and I scored. I, I went crazy, not just because it was a hat trick, because I didn't expect to score one. Fizet was back in. Yeah. The 30 seconds left in the game. We're just finishing the game. I never thought I was going to have that chance. I do a move that I've tried many times after. I, I always lost the clock when I did it. So it, when you talk about stars being aligned, and when I scored, I skated back to the bench so fast that I think he would have clocked me as fast as McDavid is, was skating. <laughs> I've never skated that fast. I went nuts. You know, I, I, I'll never forget it. And when I went to the dress room, uh, Wayne Gretzky called and he said, congratulations, you need 49 more to break my record and uh, <laughs> stuff like this. But, you know, stuff that I'll never forget. It, it, it was a magical night for me. Uh, the Oilers, obviously, they did a trophy with the three pucks and oh, for so their memories. And, you still have yeah. the Oh, yeah, doing a trophy that the Oilers did to me. And, and uh, you know, it was just, it was amazing. As a tough guy to get a hat trick, you know, there's many great players that play the game that never got one. So to me, it was something very special that I will never, ever forget. Okay, well, one of my questions I had for near the end here was, what's your favorite piece of memorabilia? Would that be yeah, up there? Yeah, the, my favorite piece, it's by far the hat trick, the, the pucks, the tree pucks, because even to this day sometimes, when I talk to people and, and, it, it, and it comes up, I, they ask me what's my best, best memory, and I said a hat trick. People were like, you had a hat trick? <laughs> I'm like, go on YouTube. You know, the great thing about technology today is you can't lie. If you don't believe me, you go on YouTube, you'll see it. Because some people, you know, sometimes, you know, people that never saw me play and they, all they know is I was a fighter. So they don't really know the type of player that I was. So when I say that I had a hat trick, some people are very surprised, right? And I love when they don't believe me because I could just show them on the phone and it's right there and it's awesome and stuff. So yeah, this is by far the best. And actually, a funny story is uh, once pe when people threw all the hats on the ice, right? Uh, the, the others, like, they put them on in a garbage bag and they pick it up, give it to the player, right? So I had like three full garbage bag of hats that there was that I kept in my closet for the longest time. And when I moved, I kind of forget about it that I had that. So I see those garbage bag in a closet. And I was like, what is that? So before I throw it away, I looked inside. Man, it smelled like there was a thousand skunk, dead skunks in there. <laughs> you know, thousands of hats in a garbage bag of people that sweat in it. Yeah. You sealed it off. And you open it up after a couple of years, they start molding in there. You know, it's like the smell of all that. It was crazy. So, 
you know, I remember it was the hat-trick hat, but man, I had to throw that away. But but it just lets you know the souvenir that I had for the longest time. The puck are not stinky, at least. They're in a trophy. They're perfect. But the hat, I had to get rid of them. <laughs> and you were still in the league when the NHL lockout happened. Where did you go play then? Oh, man, I, I played in Sweden. Uh, this is crazy because when the NHL lockout happened, um, you know, a lot of guys went to play in Europe. And I wanted to play in Europe only in a playoff because I didn't want to take the job of somebody in Europe that needs this job to make a living, right? And because so many guys went overseas, a lot of guys lost their job for it. So I figured I'm just going to go, um, I'm going to go in a playoff, uh, just for the playoffs so that way I don't take the place of anyone. But the thing is, is that when I went to AIK, which one of the most historian, history team in, in Sweden, um, I went in there to help them move up a division. So when I signed with them to go in a playoff, it was crazy because I was getting ripped in a paper in Sweden because people were like, they were criticizing that team. They're like, why are they getting a tough guy to help them move up division? That guy is a goon. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace that they got this player. I was getting ripped. And actually, guys on my team, because I can understand Swedish, they told me about it. They would tell me about it, how they thought it was the worst thing to do. And I was like, man, this is insane. Like, I just got in it. That's what they're saying. But, like, the thing is, there's no fighting in Sweden. And since there's no fighting, my game was totally different because I didn't have to think about fighting. All I had to think about is playing. I was playing 20 minutes a, a night. The coach would tap me on the back to say, George, come on, George, we need you to score. We need, like, they were tapping me to go score. I scored a goal every game that I was there. Oh. We won the playoff and we moved up a division and I got named the MVP. That was my best year of hockey I've ever had professionally. That's when the first time I felt like a hockey player, a human being, and that people were counting on me to score when the NHL is completely different. It was unbelievable. It was so unreal that the media, after it was done, they apologized. They said I was one of the best signing a winning team ever done. And they brought me back to celebrate the 125th anniversary of that team AIK. A couple of years later, I went back there and people were chanting stuff for me in a stand. It was unreal. I'll never forget about it about my time in Sweden with AIK. And uh, yeah, and, and then I went back to Neanderthal after that. But man, that's another souvenir also that I'll never forget. I hear a lot of that actually, that it's a really nice to go try playing over there once in a while. If you can't make it here, go play over there because the fans are really great over there. They're on their feet. It's crazy. Yeah. Like fans are on their feet the whole game. You got a guy that is having all those songs kind of like in soccer, but you do it in hockey. And the energy that the fans are, I remember there was a, the, the supporter of my team, the Black Army, they were called. They would take a bus and go everywhere on the road where we went. And they would chant the entire game while we were playing. They were chanting louder than even the own crowd. Like they take so much pride in their supporters. Uh, kind of like the soccer hooligans, we see it all the time, but they did that in hockey. And uh, yeah, it was... The, the, the culture of hockey in Sweden is unbelievable. And uh, I got to learn a lot about it. And uh, I love my time there. It was actually, you know, playing in NHL was special, but playing in Sweden to me was special too. 
2006, you signed in Phoenix. You scored your first goal uh, as a Coyote against Edmonton. Uh, what was that feeling? Because I, I, you wanted to stay, I remember. You wanted to stay in there. Yeah. yeah, you know, uh, the thing is, is that when you play for a team for so long, they never had to worry about the fact that they did they never needed, they never saw what it was like not to have a tough guy because nobody took liberty against the team. So I remember when I wanted to stay and then the team thought that, well, maybe we don't need a tough guy anymore. Uh, they kind of regretted it pretty fast because now like guys started getting run over and people were taking liberties on the team, but I wasn't there anymore. But anyway, when I went to Phoenix, I went there because Wayne called me and he asked me if I, if, if I wanted to play for him. When a great one calls you and asks yeah. you to play for him, you got to say yes. Are you kidding me? Wayne calls me to play for him, so he was the coach there. So, of course, I, I was going to say yes. I went to Phoenix, but, you know, Edmonton, uh, always a special place to my heart. So, uh, every time I played them, uh, I remember that Zach Stortini was a top guy that was there. And I knew I, I, I could I could hurt him bad, but I never wanted to do that to Edmonton. I've always, I've always wished him well. And I never wanted anyone to look bad when I played them because they were, they gave me my first chance uh, when I was drafted in 95. And I figured the least that I could do is manage, leave one team alone. Don't be too physical against them because you love them. and uh, But not the other teams, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 2007, 2008 now. Um, you got traded to the Penguins. How pumped were you to go play with Crosby? Well, uh, I did that actually in the deadline in Phoenix. Uh, our team wasn't wasn't going anywhere, and uh, I didn't like the country club atmosphere in the team, and I wanted to be traded. And it, it, because I had a no move clause, I got to pick where I wanted to be. So uh, the final two teams that I got to pick from were from Calgary. There was Cal the Flames and the Penguins. The things with the Flames is that as enticing as it was to go there. When you play in Edmonton, there's an unwritten rule that you don't go play for the Flames if you play in Edmonton because of Battle of Alberta. Yeah. I can't believe that now how soft the league has become when Luchik got traded for James Neal because back then, you'd never trade the top guy to the enemy team, right? So even to their me, goalies, Even their goalies, I think they did it with yeah, their goalies as well. Yeah, that was, that was weird. But, you know, I was like, again... I can't go to the rival Calgary. I love Edmonton too much. I went to Pittsburgh to play with the two best centers in the NHL back then. Now, obviously, today it's Crosby. Uh, sorry, it's it's a dry saddle and McDavid. But back then, it was Crosby and and uh, and uh, Malkin. So I got to play with them, and and it was again unbelievable to to play with such amazing players. We made it to the Stanley Cup final. We lost in six. You know, and what was crazy about that is, you know, Crosby and Malkin were young. And when my contract was up after we, we lost to the Stanley Cup final against Detroit in six, um, again, I was becoming a free agent. And, um, and, and I, I knew I was going to have a lot of team to pick from again. And, uh, you know, and, and because I capped the Penguins with Crosby, Malkin, Stahl, and Fleury, they were very limited. So uh, the, the GM wanted me to stay, but you can only give me a limited amount of money to stay in Pittsburgh. But when you're a tough guy, you never know how long your career is going to be. So you have to take the most as you can because one punch, my career could be done, right? So Crosby said one thing to me. He's like, George, I swear to you, if you stay with us, within three years, we're going to win the Stanley Cup. So I'm like, 
yeah, maybe. And, you know, and, you know, you don't think about that stuff. I just want to maximize what I can, right? So anyway, I signed in Montreal. What happened the year after? The they Penguins win the cup. Win the cup. <laughs> His promise came true. And if there's one guy that always honored his word, it was him. And uh, no, and, and then he won, he won three cups. You know, that's amazing that he was and so intelligent and, and, and unbelievable, an unbelievable leader, uh, student of the game, always on the ice, like uh, always wanted to be the best. And uh, it was incredible the, the year and a half that I played with him and Malkin in Pittsburgh. What was it like uh, getting to sign back in Montreal hometown? Well, I, I signed back there because of my mom. My mom, okay. uh, you know, um, she, she, I knew that um, it wasn't the best idea. To, when you're French-Canadian to play Montreal, it's not the same thing. You have more pressure. And I knew that because of the way that I am as a person, like I, I, always, like, I always say what I think. I'm extravagant, kind of like Jeremy Rolnick, really good friends with Phoenix. And Montreal don't like guys that are that talk too much, that are uh, extroverted, right? Kind yeah. of like PK was. And yeah. I, I knew that if I was there, it was not going to work. So anyway, I did it because my mom and my friend that, that wanted to get to see me play live was going to be there. And, um, you know, things didn't work out for two things. First of all, uh, you know, when you don't play a game and, and you say, and people, the media asks you how you feel, right? Most of the time, a player is going to be, well, you know, I respect those decision. Uh, you know, I'm going to work hard in the corner and uh, hopefully I go back in. Guys don't think like that. We're athletes. If it's the way we thought, we would be losers. We'd never make it to the NHL. So when the media asked me, how did you feel when you didn't play? I was like, I wish I never signed here. But if you say something like yeah. that, Montreal is front page. So I would say stuff like the way that I think. And media, media was like, what? Did you really say that? So I was always in the front line, in the, always front page in the media, like controversy over controversy. And at the same time, I got two inuited discs. So I was yeah. always hurt. I was always hurt. So it was not good. And I was taking cortisone pills and, and stuff and, 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 and cortisone shot to be able to play because I was hurt all the time. So... Eventually, I got released February 21st, 2010, which for my health is the best thing that could have happened because fighting, flying, and all that stuff with two uh, herniated discs, I could have been paralyzed. You know, it was very dangerous for, for my health. So that way, when I got released, I was able to let my body, like, healed up. So I didn't need, I didn't require surgery. Yeah, right on cue there. My next question was, uh, did you know it was time to retire? Well, when, when I got to a near the desk, yeah, because uh, I was always, my back was always sore. Sometimes, you know, especially when the pain goes on your leg, it was the worst thing ever. And actually, I believe that in life, everything happens for a reason. Because when I got released, it was one week after the earthquake happened in Haiti. And since my parents were born in Haiti, and I already played 13 years in the NHL at that time, I was like, this is a signal that I got released so I could do something to help the people, my, my country of origin. So right away, I associated, like I, I became a spokesperson with World Vision and I teamed up with NHLPA and the NHL to raise a couple million to help rebuild the Great Children's Hospital in Haiti. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Dan Amuse came with me to that hospital. Uh, P.K. Subin came with me. Uh, Pamela Anderson came with me. I brought many people to bring awareness to this hospital to raise more money so we could finish it. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and that's what I did. You know, I was able to do something that was much more important than playing hockey. And uh, I believe that 
you know, if I wasn't released, I couldn't have been able to do that and help in the relief there because I've been back there four times after the earthquake. So, you know, when we send live, the thing is more important than hockey sometimes. And when you have a platform, it's important to use it sometimes. I'm glad that I was able to do, to help and do a bit of relief to the people of Haiti. Uh, who was the toughest guy you ever fought? Toughest guy I ever fought. It's so, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to mention a few because I've never really ranked them to see who was the toughest, but you know, like right away, Tony Twist, Bob Probert, Jim McKenzie, Ty Domi, Stu Grimson, Donald Brashear, Derek Bougard, um, Matt Johnson. Uh, like, I could go, listen, I could tell you 50 of them because yeah. there's so many. Andrew Peters, uh, Mike Brown that was in, in Vancouver, uh, all the heavyweights were all hard. Like, the, I could never say that one of them was easy because they, they're all tough. They all, they all could hurt you. They all punch hard. Um, you know, so it's so hard to put a, I get asked that question all the time, but it's so hard to put a rank in them. Obviously, this guy that scared me more than others. Okay. You know, Bugard is 6'8", yeah. a million pounds, you know? Like, just when he looks at you, it freaks you out, you know? So, you know, that's probably the guy that had this curious, intimidating look. But other than that, all the guys that I mentioned, they were all scary. They're all good at what they did. Everybody did that job was so good. And uh, I've always respected everybody that did that because I believe it is the toughest, toughest job in professional sport. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Were you ever scared? And who was it? Oh, you know, I was always scared. Yeah. People's like, George, you were so tough, it's impossible. No, I was always scared. I, 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 had, an, I had anxiety before games, uh, knowing that I was going to fight. The one thing that I did, though, is I used a tactics that I would smile before when I was scoring off. The reason why I did that is because fighting is 75% psychologically, 25% physical. When, you, when I smile, when I screw off in front of somebody, I got them to, even, to be even more worried. Because when I was smiling, they were like, what is he smiling about? There's mm -hmm. no something that I don't. So they were more worried. They didn't like it. They're like, it shows an overconfidence before the fights even start that people got worried about. So I started using that more and more to show that, oh, yeah, you got no chance. But I, I was nervous. But on the outside... You give a different look, so the guys, so you know you won before you even start. So, fighting is all psychological game that you play with your opponent to try to win before you even start. And mm -hmm. I, and just doing that, I saw a big difference that it did to the to the guys' approach when I was fighting them. Yeah, and that's kind of the same thing that Rob Ray and Brad May were saying when they were on with me. They uh, were saying they could tell by looking at the guy if he was scared. You could you could see it in them before, and they they've already won the fight at that point when they knew that they yeah. got scared. Uh, did, you, did you have a favorite road barn to play in? Uh, road barn. Um, let me think. Well, I guess when I was playing Edmonton, it was Montreal because it was my own town, and after that, when. Everywhere I played after was Edmonton because it was like the team that drafted me. So I'm that boring. There is nothing really, <laughs> no place really that I really loved other than the fact that my hometown and Edmonton, the team that drafted me, and it was special to be there. But other than that, no, nothing, nothing really particularly. 
Uh, everywhere that I went, anywhere I got booed because, you know, when you're a tough guy and you're physical, you're hitting guys, crowd, they hated me. And I loved it. I loved getting booed because it showed that I was a factor. And, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, penalty bench when you were beating up the other tough guys and guys bang on the glass and stuff. And, you know, to be able to generate that kind of reaction shows that, uh, yeah, it means you're doing your job well. Yep, that's for sure. Those are the kind of players I like. <laughs> I, I, I mean, my beer league, I, can, I, I play beer league hockey, and I, um, I, if I hear the other team chirping or saying stuff, or like the goalie, I, I always stand right on the edge of the crease, and I drive the goalie crazy. I'm only five feet tall, but the goalies are slashing me in the back of the legs, and I'm just driving them crazy, and that's how you know I'm doing my job. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, did you have a favorite number? I think it was 27, but you wore yeah, seven. You know, you know what's funny is that 27, 27 has always been my favorite number. I've had it midget AAA. I've had it playing junior hockey. And uh, crazy stories. When I went to Edmonton, right, uh, when I was drafted, the trainer went up to me. He's like, what number do you want? I was like, my God, I want 27 because it's my favorite number. So I was like, 27. So the trainer was Sparky, his name, Lyle Shisky, And he went up to me. He's like, Oh, yes, I'm keeping 27 for you, boy. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I didn't know the history of that number. It was just my favorite number. But people were like, when I got that number, they're like, when, when Sparky was telling people like 27, people were like, oh, yeah, we like that kid, that confidence. We like that. Oh, yeah. And I was like, why are they reacting like that? That's my favorite number. People were like talking about, how like special that number is and i had no idea i find out a couple days later that dave Semenko, which which is a legend in edmonton he was protecting Wayne Gretzky, had that number and i was like oh my god they probably think that i'm the cockiest guy ever <laughs> wearing number 27 for a guy that was fighting like me upcomers like a young rookie guy would be almost like somebody coming to edmonton say i want 99. Yeah. I come in, not a minute playing in this league, and I saw what Dave Semenko's number, but I didn't know it was his number. But people look at it as this cocky kid that wants to be the future Dave Semenko. Yeah. So can you just imagine the pressure I put on myself when the fans, everybody got to find out I took number 27, but I didn't know about the history of it. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that I did good. And, and actually, a special moment was there's two special moments with Dave Semenko that I had before he passed away. The first one is when they uh, did the retirement um, night in Rexall. Uh, the last day before we moved down to Roger's place, uh, there was a thank you to the fans in Rexall that we were there and, and all the guys, all former Oilers, we were all there all together and, and um, to, to be with the fans, to do a special tribute the last day that we were there and I was there and all the guys that ever played in Edmonton were there. And I got to talk to the fans on the mic. There's a few most popular players got to talk to the fans. And Dave was there. And, 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 and I told them, and I told everybody that, you know, um, I hope that uh, I honored you, uh, warning you a number. Because, it, it, you know, it was his number. And, and I know I didn't accomplish as much as you did, but I hope I honored you wearing it. And I didn't never know. I didn't, knew, I didn't know at that time that, he was going to pass away, right? But I'm so glad I was able to say that to him. And actually, a week before he passed away, I was at, uh, at an autograph a sports store in Edmonton. 
and I was signing autographs with 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 Dave, and uh, we spent all afternoon together, and we lost him a week after that. So it was it was pretty special to spend time with him, um, knowing that we both did the job, and that he was an incredible human being from beginning to the end. So just wanted to share that story about him, uh, the best uh, number twenty seven to ever lace them uh, in the history of the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, the um. Okay, uh, Donald Brashear. Is he? Are you guys good friends still? Because you guys are yeah, friends. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. We 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 weren't close close friends. We were friends, you know, in a way, but not so much because the rival between Vancouver and Edmonton was so big. We 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 always were. We always fought. We yeah. fought so many times. So. You know, you guys had one of the toughest guys in the NHL, in the history of the NHL that played for you guys. Uh, amazing that Montreal let him go and you guys got him because, man, he uh, so much room he was giving to the guys in Vancouver, having him there. Uh, and, you know, he, he, was an, and he's, he was a guy that was more than one-dimensional player, too. He could play the game, too. He was physical. He could score, too. He could contribute. He wasn't a guy that just went out there just to fight, so... He worked really hard on his game. He had good hands, and you know he could be a force too. He could skate and he could contribute. So, uh, I, unfortunately for me, you guys had him for way too long because I got to play him way too many times when I was in Edmonton. But uh, it was brotherly, tough love, and uh, well, I've always respected uh, him the way that he played the game. Yeah, I seen that thing. I hope he's doing okay. Um, I saw the yeah, thing. Thank yeah, things got tougher for him lately. Um, and uh, But, you know, uh, everybody deserves a second chance. And yeah. uh, he's taken it. And I'm glad that he's turning thing, uh, things around. Yeah, he's one guy I would love to get on the show somehow. Um, okay, 2010, you joined the Green Party. Are you still doing politics? Or you were only in that for a couple um, of years? Actually, the thing is, um, in 2010, I became, uh, you know, Elizabeth May deputy leader. But... The thing is, the only reason why I joined the Green Party, I'm not a political guy, and 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 to be honest with you, I don't even like politics. It's just that in 2009 I became vegan, and once I became vegan, I started spreading the the green message all over the world. And when the Green Party heard me, they're like, "Oh my God, we need this guy on board because he's talking about the environment." So I remember I went to Vancouver. Elizabeth New wanted to meet me, and then we start. We I started talking about you know, the environment and all that stuff. She's like, oh my God, it'd be awesome if you work with us to spread that message. So when I joined in the Green Party, it was not to be a politician. It's just to spread the green message to people to be more conscious about the environment, the way they eat, the way they, you know, the people are so materialistic, the waste and all that stuff. So that's why I joined in. So for a mother hurt, not for a political, a political career or anything like that, because that was never my, my aspiration. We got Ricky Williams coming on in a couple of weeks. He's spreading a different kind of green message. Yeah. You know, you know, the message that he spread back then, we could see that today that he was right, you know, yeah. because this is where the word is going. CBD oil yeah. to uh, cure uh, a, a natural medicine for many athletes. So he was just ahead of his time when he was doing it. So, but yeah. I'm not sure if he was doing it so much for, for injuries as for the buzz, but you're <laughs> going to have to ask, you're going to have to ask him. Yeah, that'll be a good one. Um. Oh, you remember off the record sparring with GSP? What was it? What was it like hanging out with GSP? Well, he's a very good friend of mine. Oh, yeah. So he does, you know, he doesn't live too far from me, and uh, 
Uh, and actually, uh, have, like we have so much respect for one another because I got to know him way before he was world champ. When nobody knew who he was, you know, I was I've always supporting him before he was a world champ. I gave him jersey, gave him tickets when he came to Edmonton, trained Edmonton in the beginning when he was not known. And when he became a world champ, you know, when you're friend with somebody before they become a celebrity, it's completely different, right? Because you see other facets of him. Like you get to know him as a person before. So I was always I was always there. So when we did this fight for fun, it's because the UFC was doing his first fighting card in Montreal. And they wanted to, to, to throw some publicity to, to, to try to make it much bigger. So they've asked me if I would do an exhibition match with him. Because, you know, everywhere George St. Pierre went in the world, you know, he couldn't go anywhere. People would stop him everywhere, but not in Montreal. In Montreal, it's not like that. You could do whatever you wanted. And he was more popular outside of Montreal than Montreal. So I think they figured if he beats a hockey player, uh, especially a Canadian player, now people are going to be, oh, my God, he's really the best in the world because hockey is so big in Canada and in Montreal that George St. Pierre had to play with me like this on the map for people to realize how really good that he was. Not that you, you see him in, in cards doing unbelievable things, but if he, if he had his way with George Iraq, then he's just the best. So anyway, we did, and, you know, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago when... Uh, Zedeno Chara grabbed uh, McCabe with a kind of like a towel and he swung in in the air like that. Yeah, that's pretty much what George St. Pierre did to me. <laughs> if he wanted to, he could if he wanted to, he could have made me, he could have, uh, he could have made me suck my tongue, he could have <laughs> made me change my diaper, did whatever he wanted. It you know, he, he's the best at it, he was the best, he was incredible. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, and you know, he's, that's why he's the best at what he does, but at the same time, he did say that. If we did the same thing on the ice, he wouldn't stand a chance, which we didn't even do because we didn't want to hurt each other. But uh, still, there's a reason why he's one of the best to uh, the best who ever uh, fought in the UFC. And you also have done Battle of the Blades season two. I uh, I believe that was Theo Fleury's year as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I feel Fleury was doing it with uh, Jimmy Saleh, and yep. and it was an awesome experience. Uh, and, and you know what's crazy with Battle of the Blades? Uh, I did it for a challenge, but after I was done, I did about 75 uh, shows in figure skating. I started doing a movement uh, against uh, intimidation towards board. I was practicing figure skating. A lot of guys were getting intimidated. So after Battle of the Blades was done, a club asked me if I would do a show at the club because in March, April, there's always the year-end shows. So I was like, sure. And they asked me how much do you charge? And I was like, keep the money for the pros. I'll do it for free. So when I started doing it, all the clubs find out about it. So they all invited me. So I have about 50 choreographies in my head. I would learn to do different numbers for so many different kids that, that I was doing a show with. So because I did so many, I started doing a, a campaign against intimidation. And it was all known across Canada. And I was doing like, I got so good at it because I did so much of it, so much practice. I was always on the ice. And uh, that was my contribution to, to help uh, young boys that did figure skater, but that wanted to figure skates, but were afraid that we'd get intimidated, didn't play hockey, right? And my message, every time I went to rink and I talked to people in the mics and I would say, and, and, and it's actually true, that figure skating is harder physically and mentally than hockey. It is harder. And 
saying a guy that fought for 13 years in the NHL, because when you fall in figure skating, you have no equipment, you know, and the stress factor that figure skating is scanning through and competition with the toughness that they have. If you make one little mistake, you could get hurt. You could be out of contention for medals. You could, you can't afford mistake in figure skating. In hockey, it's a game of mistake. You're full of equipment. It's not the same thing. So I learned so much about it. I got to appreciate that sport. That sport is amazing. And I'm so glad that I was able to, to contribute after that show. And, and the fact that I, I learned figure skating in that show and I got to use it for, uh, to create a movement to help out boys that wanted to practice that sport. I had Jamie Soleil and Theo Fleury on. So we've talked about it a few times on, on my shows. Yeah. The, um, okay. Oh, of course, 2011, you were in the movie Goon. Yeah, yeah you, you know the funny thing about the movie Goon? A, a funny story about it. Um, first of all, uh, just let you know, Liev Schreiber, we became friends, and uh, he, uh, it, it was incredible because he said that you, you would look at my fights on YouTube and, and Bob Robert's fight to learn how to be in character to do this. It was incredible. And he worked really hard on his skating because he wanted to do all the fighting, sing everything himself. And when I did the fighting scene with Sean William Scott, he wasn't so good on skate. So when we were fighting with my right arm, I had to hold them up so he could stay up while we were fighting. Like, And when you fight, you got to be stopped this inches from the face of one another to, 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 to punch. But he was so out of balance that the first, first fighting scene we did together he actually punched me for real. <laughs> and when he did, because I was holding him with my right hand, I dropped him because I kind of glazed. And I looked him in the face like I was like, and then it took me a couple <laughs> seconds to be back to normal because I was going to jump him. And it's funny because he laid on the ice and like, George, please, please don't rape me. Don't rape me. And <laughs> in a way, in a funny way that he said it. So <laughs> then I could just calm down because the court touched kind of like I was in a hockey fight, right? I got punched and I was like, but yeah, I knew it was an accident, but it's just that I, I was really not expecting it. But uh, no, it was awesome. Uh, uh, the fighting scene that we did, uh, I liked the goon one better than the two. Yeah. The Me. two was really, really exaggerated as the one was more closer to the to a true story. But, uh, you know, roll mumble in the hockey is like, you know, it's, it's, it's over the board, right? But the first one was actually a pretty touching uh, story, especially the end of it. Yeah, we're. Uh, I've actually been in contact with the real Doug Glatt, and uh, we're trying to get him on here for an interview as well. Awesome. The well, you've already talked about your book. Um, do you still own many fitness gyms? Uh, no, not anymore. No, and right now I'm in. Uh, you know, um, I, I own real estate. I own rice kombucha, a clothing company, Araki. Um, uh, many, I, I, I own a sport memorabilia card store. Uh, okay. We like we sell and buy card store of all the five major sports. Uh, you know, I'm active in so many different things that I do, and I just love it and stuff. Everything I touch, I put my energy into it. Works, so I'm having lots of fun. I'm on radio every day, and but the the, the most fun thing that I do is public speaker. Uh, I, I wrote a, my own autobiography in French and English. And I talk all over the world uh, to people about veganism, motivation, French, English, whatever. And I go all over the place and to share my experience with people, to inspire them, to me is one of the things that I love the most. And uh, it's just awesome to feel privileged to be able to do that, to share sure. my story. 
your book, the unlucky, the unluckiest tough guy. That's the one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, the story of the unlikeliest tough guy. Because uh, you know, again, unlikeliest tough guy is because you would never expect that this guy that you're talking to right now, if you listen and read my story, that you know, was going to be a tough guy. Never thought I would. Never thought I was going to do that job. Uh, did you have any pregame rituals or a meal you would eat before the game? Uh, yeah, actually, I did. Um, I've always, I was always the first one at the rink when on game day, I would get there four hours before four hours, four and a half before the game. Uh, there was only me and sometimes I would even get to the rink before the trainer and I would pray. Uh, I'd go in a hold in a cold tub for like 20 minutes and I would pray in it. Uh, I would pray for my protection and the protection of the other person that I was fighting because I didn't like it. I never wanted to hurt someone and, and get hurt also. So that's what I would do. I needed the calm before the storm, so I would get in. I needed quiet time, no players, no one around me. And and I didn't want to make it weird to pray when guys in the dressing room making their stick looking at me weirdly. Yeah. So I, I loved this. I was just alone in any room, whether it's on the road, everywhere that I was. I take a cab and never take the team bus for the game. I was the first one there. And uh, yeah, and I needed that calm alone to to ground myself before guys start coming in and then and then i have to focus on the guy on the guy that i might be facing uh, tonight to to have a go that's i heard on the radio out here today that uh i'm talking kind of like the dak prescott injury that the guy that when he played in the nfl he would pray but he wasn't praying for a win he was praying that he didn't have any injuries that will harm him down the road like a dak prescott this weekend yeah yeah, there's many guys that, that did that and stuff, especially the job that I did was so hard, so physical that, uh, you know, anything to ground us, you know, to make sure that uh, we let our emotion go. Well, I'm out of questions, so I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. It was pretty awesome. And yeah, thank you for having me, brother. No worries. Thank you.